Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. I'd first like to welcome you to the final episode of this season. I am thankful to all of you who listen and give me hope that there are still those people out there who respect and love science as much as I do, and who find the work of researchers who don't always get to be in the spotlight as fascinating as I do. This final episode, also the last in the fathering series, though I promise there will be more focus on fathers going forward, tackles the issues of co-parenting, the role of biological paternity, dads as babysitters, and more, through research on a very unique population, mountain gorillas. I'm joined by anthropologist Dr. Stacy Rosenbaum, whose name you may remember if you listened to my interview with Dr. Lee Gettler, as she discusses her work and how we can think about this work as we tackle the human questions and issues surrounding fathering and parenting in general. Plus, there's a whole story on sharks, too. Thank you all again for listening, and enjoy your final episode of the season. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Stacy Rosenbaum. She is a biological anthropologist at the University of Michigan who studies the ecological causes and evolutionary consequences of social behavior. She is the head of the Primate Behavior Lab, where she studies how humans and many other animals develop and maintain myriad social relationships across the course of their lifetimes, what their consequences are, and how individual relationships impact evolutionary dynamics. Her primary field and laboratory research focuses on a wild population of endangered mountain gorillas in the Great Lakes region of Africa that has been monitored for more than 50 years. In addition to studying gorillas, Dr. Rosenbaum also works on complementary research questions about human and non-human primate health, evolution, and sociality using the Cebu Longitudinal Health and Nutrition Survey, a long-term study of humans in Cebu, the Philippines, and data collected for the Ambaseli Baboon Research Project in southern Kenya. Her research program integrates behavioral, demographic, genetic, ecological, and physiological data to gain a richer understanding of the evolution of mammals generally and the hominid lineage specifically. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, before we talk about your work as it pertains specifically to fathering, because you have a lot of work on a lot of different things, but this is the fathering series, so we're going to focus exclusively on that. Um, How did you get into the field of biological anthropology, especially studying mountain gorillas uh, more generally, and then fathering more specifically? Yeah, so I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. And this was not a field that I knew anything about, (laughs) frankly, but I got lucky because at Wisconsin, there's a very long history of primatology. So uh, Harry Harlow was at University of Wisconsin and it has a very robust primatology program. Um, And I happened to take a class in primate behavior during my junior year. And on day one, I just totally fell in love with it. Um, I I had always been very interested in animal behavior. I didn't know that you could make a career out of it. (laughs) You know, I think lots of people when they're young and they like animals, you're just told, oh, you can be a vet when you grow up, right? And that's, that's like your one animal you know, option. But it turns out that there's actually a lot of things you can do, including being a researcher. And I took that class um, and that led to kind of a series of jobs that were related to this. And then I was very fortunate to be offered a job as a research assistant at the Karasoki Research Center in Rwanda which is the site that has monitored gorillas now for more than 50 years. Um, And I was specifically hired to work on this project that was looking at relationships between adult male mountain gorillas. 
So gorillas, you probably know, are kind of a strange system because they usually live in one male groups, but we actually have lots of groups that contain multiple males. And that was what I was looking at. Um, but it's just impossible to watch mountain gorillas for any length of time and not become very intrigued by the relationships between adults and kids. Um, the males interact with kids a lot. And so when I saw that, it was just became something that I was really interested in. And here we are 20 years later. <laughs> wow. That is, you know, it's funny you saying about the vet. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Dr. Amanda Detmer and yes. she too had this same. And we got talking about it with my daughter who loves animals and it's true. The one thing that always comes up is I'm going to be a vet. I guess I'll yes. be a vet. That's what we'll do is be a vet. And so I love that it's yet another one where, you know, you get to take that passion for animals early and turn it into something that is not a vet and yes. probably a bit more exciting than a vet too. I, yeah. And I like that my subjects aren't all sick. <laughs> you know, That's true too. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, so, you know, obviously vets work with, with plenty of healthy animals too, but so much of it is is you know helping animals that are sick or hurting and obviously that's great but it also seems really emotionally taxing so uh yeah yeah i i hear you 100 percent. that is and i hadn't actually thought about that so i'm gonna have to point that out to my daughter because she <laughs> might change her mind there um yes. so i'm glad you brought up the mountain gorillas actually because that's the line of research i want to start with because it is fascinating and you know there was one bit you just mentioned and i think it's worth exploring first before we go into the research which is this idea of the multi-male groups mm -hmm. because as you said that is kind of anomalous and i think for many people when we think about many mammals not just primates but mammals it is weird to have that yeah so what I mean, why does that happen? What is the is the structure different in these groups than others? Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, honestly, these groups are kind of a mystery. Um, we don't have good answers for why they do this. So anybody who has taken an intro to animal behavior and intro to primate behavior class can tell you that gorillas are kind of the canonical case of polygyny where you have one male and multiple females, right? Males have all the characteristics of a system in which you've got really strong contest competition between the males, meaning they fight for access to mating opportunities. But then once they manage to monopolize those, that's it, right? And so they're very large. They have all these characteristics that make them very good at fighting. And we don't expect an animal that, that has that morphological all those morphological features to live in a multi-male, multi-female social system. And yet they do. And frankly, this is one of the reasons that I find them so interesting. Um, they're remarkably socially flexible. So they can live in these multi-male, multi-female groups, one male, uh, multi-female groups. They can live in all male groups, interestingly. Males can be solitary for years at a time. Um, they're really, really socially diverse, for lack of a better way to put it. And I think that that's one of the very cool things about them. And one of the things that for somebody who studies evolution makes them particularly interesting. But we don't have a satisfying explanation for why it is that way. And one of our questions is how recent this is. You know, one of the things that their morphology would suggest is that for a very long time, they probably did live in one male, multi-female groups almost exclusively. But clearly something more complicated is going on now. And of course, the other possibility is just for whatever reason, their morphology and their behavior don't match in quite the way that our theory would predict. So, 
And when we link their behavior to kind of thinking about human behavior in the same way, because we are also somewhat unique in our social structures and the variety of social structures that exist, does this make findings more applicable when we think about the relationship to humans or not at all? It just happens to be kind of... (laughs) I certainly make that argument when I write grants, that's for sure. Uh, No, I I actually do think that there's some truth to that. Um, You know, the fact that they are so socially flexible in a way that other great apes are not. You know, chimpanzees obviously have this really interesting fission fusion system, but that's what they have, right? We don't find one male multi-female groups of chimpanzees. We don't find all male groups of chimpanzees, uh, even if they have these little subgroups within communities. Um, and of course, orangutans are, are you know, largely solitary. So mountain gorillas are unquestionably the most socially flexible of the, the living non-human great apes. And I think that that makes them a particularly interesting model and also makes them particularly well-suited for some kinds of questions where it's really ideal to have multiple social systems in the same population. So so that actually brings me probably to the first question that, you know, I, I love the work that you did on kind of the relationship between the males and the young in this group, and particularly how it related, the, the quality of relationship as it's related to paternity. Because even though they have this different system, even though humans do, I think we generally would assume, and I know I would have assumed prior to reading your work, that paternity would have the largest impact on that quality of relationship. Someone's going to have a closer relationship with their own kin than they would other young in, in that group. But that's not quite what you did find. And so can you kind of run us through kind of what you're looking at, what these structures are, how you're assessing that relationship between the two? And what is happening outside of paternity? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the very first things that we did was just write a paper that frankly was largely descriptive in nature, just talking about what these relationships look like, right? What are the behaviors that we see? And in mountain gorillas, um, kids, (laughs) Lee Gettler always laughs at me for calling them kids, uh, but they are kids. <laughs> it's and it's also a nice way of getting around having to say infants and juveniles. So we're just going to call them kids. But uh, I like that. It makes it much easier to listen to too. It's easier. Yes, exactly. Kids spend tremendous amounts of time in very close proximity to adult male gorillas. So uh, we we actually occasionally even in the literature will refer to it as babysitting. So when you're out with a mountain gorilla group, it's not at all uncommon to see an adult male with sort of this little swarm of infant and juvenile follow her followers right near him. And, you know, sometimes their moms are around, but frankly, sometimes they're not. And it really does look like a babysitting, right? Like he's like the, his own mobile daycare. And so males are highly, highly tolerant of this behavior. They will let kids crawl all over them. They will let them uh, do something that I call co-feeding, which is basically feeding right underneath them or off the same plants. Not something that adult males are usually tolerant of with other adults, um, unsurprisingly. Uh, they do a lot of resting and physical contact. So gorillas have to spend a large amount of time each day just digesting food, right? They eat huge quantities of leaves. You have to digest a lot to do that. So they spend a lot of time, you know, laying around. So they'll actually rest touching each other, right? Um, You know, where their bodies are physically touching, that's a sign of social closeness. Uh, They will play together. Uh, They will groom. Um, They will, males will sometimes hold them. Carrying is something that we see Rarely, it does happen. 
uh, but but um, those are kind of the primary behaviors that we're looking at. And so what we were interested in is when you're, especially when you're in these multi-male groups, what is it, what are the characteristics that predict how much of this behavior you engage in with a given male from the perspective of the kid or a given kid from the perspective of the male? Um, and one thing that was very clear, you know, even before we had any paternity results that we could match things up with is kids like high-ranking males and high-ranking males like kids. So when they live in these multi-male groups, uh, males have very strong dominance hierarchies. There's one male that is at the top of the heap, right? And uh, the, the rest of it, you know, it's usually really easy to figure out who's number two and who's number three. The rest of it can get a little fuzzy because you just don't have enough interactions um, to determine it. But they, they have really strong dominance hierarchies. And dominant males are, are a favorite of the kids. And that was quite clear very early on. Not that there's no variation. Um, of course there is, but, but that's a really important predictor. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, that, so I'm just curious about that because is there a feature about these males that these kids would go to? Like, I'm just trying to fathom how they would know that as children, that that's who they're spending time with. Is it the social cues of other gorillas in the group that are... I think so. Yeah. And I think it's also the social cues of their moms. So another thing that we found is that the male, so, so in general, most females prefer to spend more time near the dominant male than other males. But again, there's variation from female to female, right? And one of the things that we found that was a very strong predictor of who kids would spend time around once they were old enough that they were you know, physically independent from mom and making their own social choices rather than just being carried around by her the male that they preferred to spend the most time with nine in 90% of cases was the male that their mom had spent the most time around when they were less than a year old and she was making their social choices for them. So I think a large part of what they're doing is taking cues from other gorillas in the group, but most particularly their mom, which is not surprising, right? That makes sense. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Go on. So we've yeah. got that they have their favorite. They have their favorite, disproportionately the highest ranking male. Um, but, you know, things actually ended up working out really well from the perspective of my dissertation research. Um, we kind of moved on in my dissertation research from looking strictly at kind of these behavioral or demographic predictors to looking at actual paternity. So we were able to incorporate paternity into the analysis. And we had a lot of non-dominant males siring infants during that period. So there's a lot of fluctuation. There are some periods in time where the dominant males doing really well and frankly, just dominating reproduction, right? But then we've also gone through periods where that's not so true. And it was not so true while I was collecting a lot of dissertation data. And I was expecting that paternity would predict who it is that you're spending time with for all the reasons that you mentioned earlier. But as soon as I got, so I was blind to the paternity results while I was collecting data. And as soon as I opened the file that had the paternity results in it, I knew paternity didn't predict anything. <laughs> it, was, it was glaringly obvious to me. You know, I I'd, I'd just spent a year and a half watching these animals every single day. I knew who preferred who. And it was pretty obvious that was not matching up with who your actual dad was. So. That's crazy. So. Yeah. You know, I, I start to wonder about this. So you have that paternity doesn't seem to affect it, but I can kind of see in those periods why, like there's a story that, I mean, I would think of telling, which is that in these periods where non-dominant males are able to reproduce at a higher rate, 
it would seem even the favoring of the young children towards the dominant would still be beneficial for that male in a way because then their siring has the chance to become dominant because I would assume and well correct me if I'm wrong I'm making assumptions that might be completely incorrect because I've never been even close to a mountain gorilla um are in terms of spending this time too I would imagine a lot of it is social learning for the kids that they're trying to pick up these traits and behaviors of the dominant male Yes, I do think that one of the really important roles, so this is this is actually something that we got learned. I've spent a lot of time talking about how do you capture this kind of thing? So, so uh, anecdotally, my suspicion is that one of the really important things that males are doing for kids is helping socialize them. They are kind of a group focal point where kids can go and find other kids. They can be safe so their moms don't have to worry, you know, that they're going to get themselves in trouble somehow. Uh, and they can go and learn how to be gorillas, right? And, and interact properly with other gorillas. And I think that the males play a really important role in that. Being able to empirically show that is a very challenging thing. And um, it's something that I think about a lot and is a very difficult thing to capture. But my suspicion is that that does play a super important role. And just one more thing. I know I have so many questions. I'm, I'm going to keep us on track here. But um, it's the comment you made at the beginning that the higher dominant males seem to like the kids more as well, that it went the other direction. What do you think is that? Because that seems weirder to me. Like it makes sense going the opposite direction that for the reasons we just discussed, but going the other way, you would think as the dominant, you kind of get to sit back and be like, get away from me. I don't have to deal with you. Um, so what do you think is happening there? So I think there's a few different possibilities. One possibility is that, so we were talking about earlier, we're not really sure how long mountain gorillas have been living in these multi-male groups. And one possibility is that if for most of their evolutionary history, they lived only in one male groups where paternity was very, very, they were very confident of paternity, right? Then they probably were only ever using co-residence as a cue. If you lived in my group, you were my kid, right? There was no need for any kind of distinguishing beyond that. And one possibility is they're just still using that cue. Right. And it's a cue that doesn't work terribly well in the context of their, you know, their the, the social um, environment that they find themselves in currently. So that's one possibility is that they're using a cue that doesn't work. Um, another possibility is that they're basically using a strategy that um, uh, that uh, another scientist named Liza Moskovice has referred to as bet hedging in a paper that a really nice paper that she wrote about baboon behavior. Um, so. What they found is basically the, the relationships between males and kids, they're pretty good at predicting who their own kid is based on their past mating history with the female. And essentially, it seems like males are hedging their bets, right? Statistically, there's a pretty good chance this kid is mine. And so therefore, I will uh, help take care of it for, for, you know, that's an oversimplified way to put it, but uh, mostly right. Um, and it could be that something like that is going on with the gorillas, too. Uh, you know, that high-ranking male is very likely to have mated with the vast majority of the females in the group during times when they were capable of conceiving. And so it could just be that he's using the rule of thumb, well, look, I'm probably their dad, and so I'm going to treat them like my kid. That's a possibility. Um, but there's another, another kind of more intriguing possibility that maybe we'll save for later, because I know you had specific questions about... Uh, whether they're doing this to essentially ingratiate them uh, with 
with their moms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that was, yes, so you're, you're going there. But I wanted to, yeah, first ask actually about a different one, which was more to do with kind of this idea of group survival. Mm-hmm. Is there with these multi-male groups, it seems like almost you could take another argument that they're prioritizing the survival of the group, which would involve the centrality of kids in, you know, raising the next generation of keeping going from a propagating the species perspective, you have to focus on all the children to keep it going. You only have one or two. That's not going to actually keep the group going. Um, But I don't know enough about gorilla behavior to know if that's even feasible from a perspective of their social relationships. Yeah. So I tend to be highly suspicious of anything that sounds like a group selection argument. And that to me sounds like a group selection argument, right? And we think that the examples of those in nature are very few and far between and and pretty much exclusively the realm of things like social insects, where everybody is so closely related that it's, you know, always functionally kin kin selection. Um, So I don't think, you know, as much as I would like to think that gorillas are that kind and nice, I guess I'm not convinced they are. Um, I think that the behavior is probably more selfish than that. You know, one of them being what I said before is that they might be using a cue that they that doesn't necessarily work. But I think the other possibility, and we actually do have some evidence for this, is that females actually prefer the males who have strong relationships with kids. And what that potentially means is that they are more likely to mate with those males in the future. And so in that case, it is good for that individual male's Uh, biological fitness, right? He will in the long run end up having more kids if he engages in this behavior. So I think it's far more likely that one of those two explanations, or frankly, maybe some combination of the two, because they don't have to be mutually exclusive, uh, accounts for what it is that we see there. That makes a lot of sense. And there was one finding here that um, before we go on to kind of that, that female-male relationship part of everything here. But you did find an effect of group size, mm-hmm. which was that this effect was, so the relationships were greater, the were stronger, I guess. I don't know the best yeah, way of putting stronger. it. stronger. Mm-hmm. In smaller groups. Yep. Why would, you know, I guess it does make sense if there's just fewer kids around to have them be stronger. But is that probably what it was, just demands so- on time? Yeah, so we debated about this a lot. And I think there's a couple different ways that you can potentially look at this. Um, You're right. If there are less of you around, then there are just less demands on time, right? But the thing is, you wouldn't necessarily have to distribute your time differently. You could essentially basically have your own little subgroup within a bigger group that you had equally strong relationships with that were equivalent to the relationships that are happening in smaller groups. And, you know, we tried really hard to kind of tease all this apart. And it still seemed like even accounting for the time thing, the relationships were stronger in these smaller groups. And so I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, One possibility is that in the smaller groups, you have higher paternity certainty, potentially, Um, you know, you have less possible dads, right? Uh, And from the perspective of the male, there's, there's fewer possible competitors. Um, And so one possibility is that, is that, you know, higher paternity certainty means you've got stronger relationships, in which case, you know, you do have kind of an effect of, I don't want to call it kin selection, because that specifically implies that there's a cost going on. But uh, nepotism, basically, right? It it would be a nepotism argument. Um, But 
you know, at the same time, I think as much as we can try to control for the effects of group size and just kind of eliminate the possibility that that it's just simply a time allocation thing, I think actually really ruling that out is a very challenging thing to do. So I think about the nepotism, which makes sense, but then it kind of counters the other argument you just made about their own fitness because they don't have to buy as hard to be able to mate if there are fewer males. So in a sense, you feel like those would almost counter each other out, out of, okay, favoritism, but on the other hand, who else are you going to go to? Yeah. It's, you know, it's me or Joe Schmo down there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's it. So yeah. And if you're a female mountain gorilla, and actually I think, you know, we're joking, but that is actually a really important thing. Female mountain gorillas emigrate all the time. Right, female mountain gorillas. Uh, so, unlike baboons or macaques or, or maybe some of the old world monkeys that a lot of people are familiar with, females stay in their group their whole lives. Female mountain gorillas can change groups many times across the course of their lives. Some don't. Some stay in their natal group their whole life, but some will leave. And frankly, I do think that there clearly is incentive for for males to keep females happy because they can vote with their feet. And they will vote with their feet. Um, We know that females are more likely to leave a group if they've lost an infant. And so if you, the male, have not kept up your end of the bargain and, you know, done a good job of making sure that that infant survives, it's more likely that you're going to lose those females. So I think even when, even if there's not another male in the group, that doesn't mean that you're not still functionally experiencing potential consequences of of female choice, right? Female choice is potentially part of what is driving that behavior there. You've done a fair bit of work on the evolution of paternal care. And I know I've personally heard more about the evolution of fitness in terms of reproduction in males and kind of this idea of allocare, including males, that really we look about the the mother as the dominant source. And you mentioned babysitting before with the dad as this idea. And, um, you know, humans seem to have a level of involvement that's quite different than others. And it now seems like these gorillas are also coming in too. So I want to start by asking is, you've answered a bit already, but why do you think in these groups we see this greater involvement? Like you've talked about, you know, we have the social learning, there's this stuff, but why in gorillas, why in humans, why not in macaques or baboons or others where we might expect to see some of this what is what's happening in the relationship there that's allowing this kind of co-parenting really as i think kind of how we want to think about it is this co-parenting to evolve totally yes i think that's absolutely right um i think we have fairly strong evidence now in in a variety of old world primate species you know baboons and gorillas in particular but also there's some interesting stuff um there's some interesting stuff that's been done by some colleagues of mine in Germany. Um, Julia Osner and Oliver Schulke um, have done some really great work on uh, asymmetric macaques, um, basically showing kind of, you know, things along the same line, right, that, that basically kind of do look like co-parenting. Now, are they the same kinds of co-parenting that humans are doing? No, right? Humans are clearly still different. We are clearly still a pretty dramatic outlier in this sense, but it's also not as simple as we used to think it was, where it was just male parenting is something that occurs in these little tiny, small New World monkeys, and it occurs in humans, and it doesn't occur anywhere in between 
in on the you know primate phylogenetic tree. That's obviously not true. There's a whole bunch of different versions of male care that are happening amongst various types of old world primates. And frankly, I don't think that we have a convincing answer yet uh, to your very good question about why is it that humans look different in this regard, right? There's very clearly fitness benefits to the kinds of cooperative behavior that humans engage in. Right? Humans have an incredibly, one of the things that's so cool about humans is we have this very, very flexible caregiving system. Um, there's a really nice book written by Sarah Hardy called Mothers and Others that I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Yeah. Um, that, you know, basically everybody who studies this has read that book, right? It's an amazing book. And, um, one of the things that makes humans unique is that we have this really flexible caregiving system where everybody just sort of jumps in, right? It's not the typical mammalian system where it's just moms do 100% of the care and nobody else does anything. We get help from younger siblings, from dads, aunts, uncles, grandparents, the neighbors, friends, right? We just all kinds of different places. Humans are really uniquely flexible in that regard. And I I personally don't think that we have a great explanation for why. Why is it that humans jumped whatever evolutionary barrier there is that is keeping that from happening in macaques and baboons and gorillas and chimpanzees, for example? Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about things like the role that male provisioning might have played um, and, you know, kind of increasing division of labor and how that allows for reproductive benefits that flow to both males and females, basically. But, you know, again, um, I'm working on a paper with uh, Joan Silk, who is another primatologist at Arizona State University, who also has done a lot of work on paternal care. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot is, well, why chimps hunt, right? Chimps live in these groups where presumably it wouldn't actually be all that difficult for males to help provision females. And that would obviously have reproductive benefits for potentially both of them. And yet they don't jump that hurdle, right? They don't get beyond to that next step. And I don't think that we have a good answer yet. And frankly, we might never as to what it was in human evolution that changed us from something that I think probably looked a lot more like what mountain gorillas and what baboons do to the very extreme forms of care that humans engage in. That's a very, it's a fascinating question and it's a very hard question to answer, unfortunately. So with the idea of this jump there, like there's this idea that something just happened and I guess I'm wondering, is it, do we think there's just kind of one key catalyst or smaller ones? Because I'm thinking now of your work on the, that quote unquote friendships between um, that were found in, in mountain gorillas here. We're back to the mountain gorillas, but as the example, that there were these cases of, or pardon me, baboon, the baboon friendships. I'm sorry. There's so many different animals. I can't keep track. That's um, totally fine. <laughs> I suspect that the same thing exists in gorillas. We just don't have a paper that says it. Okay. All right. So the baboon friendships feel like that's like one step on the way towards what we're seeing. So I'm wondering, is it you know, a major catalyst that we're looking for in terms of this switch for humans? Or is it just kind of this sum of all these little catalysts that may have come kind of as a whole? And you may probably, I will have to ask you to explain these friendships for everyone, because people are probably wondering what the heck I'm talking about, like baboons, friends and fathering, and how does it go? But so let's start with, can yeah. you tell us about these relationships so that people might understand my sure. train of thought? 
Absolutely. So this term friendships, uh, which is specifically referring to the relationships between male and female baboons, goes all the way back to, to the 1970s um, to a book that was written by Barb Smuts, who actually is a uh, emeritus professor at University of Michigan. Um, and she wrote, uh, the book is called uh, Sex and Friendship in Baboons. And she referred to these strong, so sorry, backing up just a little bit, baboons live in these multi-male, multi-female groups. And yet within these groups, there are some male and female baboons who have stronger bonds than the kind of typical bond between a male and female. So it's almost like their own, their own little partnership within the larger group. And she referred to these as friendships. And that term really caught on. And it's something that primatology has used for a very long time. Um, I think so. So there's sort of a push and that this push is very much being led by Joan Silk uh, to get away from calling the relationships that. And the reason that she has a problem with that term is because it implies that the relationship is actually specifically about the male and the female. Whereas the vast majority of the evidence that we now have from baboons actually suggests that really what is motivating this behavior is the kid. That the reason that the male is spending a lot of time with this female and the reason that, that the two of them are interested in each other and spending time around each other isn't about the fact that they care about each other. It's the fact that they need each other to help successfully raise this kid. And they're essentially engaging in a form of joint parenting, in co-parenting. Um, and so Joan has been advocating for a long time now for calling these things primary associations. And so I'm now trying to switch my language too, but uh, it's a, you know, it's an uphill battle. Everybody really likes that term friendship for obvious reasons, but I think she's, she's 100% right that knowing what we know now, the term friendship is a little bit deceptive because it, it implies something specific about the function. Whereas the whole point of the term primary associations, it might not be as catchy, but it doesn't imply anything about, about uh, a particular function of the relationship. The idea of friendship then, I mean, obviously it, it's not correct because it's, and instead of primary association, could we just call it co-parenting? Because sure. it feels like that too works yes. really well. Yep. <laughs> but I feel like the fact that it isn't friendship, is that one of those little jumps for humans that may be something that we're not seeing in other primates? Because oftentimes that investment, it's not just about a child. It's not, I mean, we always hear the story, someone's there just for the kids or whatnot, but that tends to be, you know, the minority, we're not, that's not how we base our relationships in the long run with people that we actually have these relationships that are independent of the child as opposed to what we're seeing. And could that be the development of that relationship be something that has been one of those pushes catalyst us moments, pushes us forward as it goes? Yes, I totally agree with that. I do think, you know, humans obviously do form really strong I'm going to use the word pair bonds as problematic as that can be, right? But we do, we obviously develop really strong, even in, even in cultures where, you know, monogamous partnerships are not necessarily the norm, people still form really strong emotional attachments to their partners, right? That, as you said, don't necessarily have anything to do with children. Um, and I don't think that is certainly not true to the same extent uh, in things like baboons and macaques and chimpanzees and, and gorillas. Um, I do, however, think that, so this is 
definitely of all those species that I just listed, this is definitely the best studied in baboons. Um, and I think we are just kind of now beginning to appreciate the relevance of these bonds for understanding what it is that is going on between males and kids. Uh, for a long time, they were kind of looked at as independent research programs. And I think that that's not necessarily the most productive way to think about it. I think we need a lot more information about what it is that is going on in this triad, right? The male-female kid triad that, that exists um, and kind of understanding the complicated dynamics that are at work there. But I totally agree with you that that could be one of those catalysts. And frankly, I think you know, as scientists, we're always looking for that one big thing that is the answer to why something happened. Going back to what you said earlier, I agree with you. I think it's really unlikely there's one particular thing. You know, we want there to be some particular feature of human, you know, ancient human ecology. We want there to be some particular feature. That's not usually how it works in the real world, right? It is probably, the most likely explanation is probably that there were a whole bunch of small things that add up to something that is much larger, you know, it's much bigger than the sum of its parts. And my suspicion is as unsatisfying as that is to publish papers about, that's probably the truth. <laughs> right. it, well, it's like all of you, like you say that, and I'm sitting here thinking of like diet programs. Everyone wants the one big thing when in reality, it's always going to be the sum of a lot of little things that you do over time. Work, you want that one big moment, but it's actually going to be the sum of a ton of papers that you write that kind of is the definition of, of, a career as it goes. So I, I do Absolutely. see that. And so on that note, then I, I do feel like one of those things in my mind, and again, I am so ignorant, but I'm going to throw out my ignorant ideas with the caveat that they're ignorant ideas, is that most of our discussions in, in the world, I don't mean you and I, but like most discussions that I hear center on the idea of fitness. Mm -hmm. And so, so many ideas are looking at it seems to me from what I, I hear in a more, you know, mainstream discussion, so to speak, has to do with this idea of just looking at it from a reproductive perspective. And yet the relationships we see in humans, as we just mentioned, don't center on reproduction per se. Like it, it's not that factor. So if all our theories looking at at primates and then humans center on reproduction fit fitness as, as the crucial piece could it be that there's actually something outside reproductive fitness that is playing a role and i know that counters all of our evolutionary theory has to be about you know and i say that as someone well aware but you know you've we, we look at humans now we look at the love children that are getting that aren't theirs. And yes, maybe in the mountain gorillas, maybe it's due to just the idea that they're hedging their bets or it's a, an old world system coming into play, but it's there and we see it. So what, from an evolutionary perspective, how do we reconcile these things that have to do that are non-fitness related with this mindset that it must be fitness related for it to have propelled us forward? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. And frankly, uh, you know, probably <laughs> that's 50 years of research right there easily, right? Probably by 10 different faculty members. Um, it, it, it's a really, really interesting question and something that there's already been a lot of ink spilled about. And I think, frankly, there's probably going to be a lot more spilled about it. Um, humans 
have something very interesting going on where we you know, have gone through this demographic transition where we no longer have nearly as many children as we used to. And this is something that we see happen all over the world, right? As, as countries become more wealthy, as women become more educated, you get this switch to investing very heavily in a small number of children as opposed to having more of them. Um, but Along with that, humans also have this thing that you were referring to where we care deeply about the welfare of people that we are not related to. We can, you know, we cry over the fates of strangers that we will never meet. We donate money to charity to help people that we will, you know, never encounter in the real world. That is unquestionably a uniquely human thing. And I think my argument would be that that's not entirely disconnected from this idea of fitness playing an important role because what we what we think is that we basically the the mechanisms that made us very cooperative and for most of our history we were probably mostly cooperative with our kin spilled over right in a way that they haven't in other species and and we've somehow ended up in this situation where we find ourselves empathizing with everything even species that are not our own right look at what we do to take care of dogs and cats and you know wild animals and we will go to crazy lengths to i there's this picture that i use in in um when i'm teaching undergraduates it's this amazing picture of this it's a huge group of strangers working together on a beach in Cape Cod to dig a great white shark that has somehow managed to beach itself. Like it, this was like, it's a great story. It's like Memorial Day weekend and a 10 foot great white shark somehow manages to get itself up on the beach in Cape Cod. <laughs> and, and you know, Oh my Lord. But, oh, it's crazy. It's <laughs> completely crazy story. I can send you a link to the, I can send you a link to the oh, article. Please but do. It's this yeah. Great, great picture. So everybody like stops their Memorial Day picnics and goes over and starts trying to dig a trench to get the shark back out into the water, right? This is completely batshit insane from an evolutionary perspective, right? Everybody would be terrified of that animal if it was in the water, and for good reason. It will but, eat them. But did they succeed? I they, have to know now. Sadly, sadly, they oh, did no. not. Unfortunately, oh. apparently sharks have a really, really short window in which they can be out of the water. I guess their organs are so, like, they're so heavy that if they're not buoyed by the water, they just collapse. Like, they collapse, essentially. Mm -hmm. it was, so it was very so sad. I know. I, I wish the story had a happy ending. But the, you know, the happy part of that story is you've got all these strangers working together to try to save this animal that would prefer to eat them, right? And that is a feature of human psychology that is really fascinating and probably that feature of human psychology is a result of selection, right? It was good for us. It was good for our individual fitness at one point in time to have a psychology that was super cooperative. And now in the modern world, we just live in a, we live in an era where it ends up getting generalized to different species and people that we're never going to meet. And I think that's one of the things that makes humans exceptionally cool. And I don't think the fact that it has its, it potentially at least has its roots in evolution and in, you know, fitness benefits, I don't think that makes it any less cool. If anything, it makes it more so, right? The fact that that can be generated via this kind of fundamentally selfish thing, I think is very cool. And I think it makes it more interesting, not less. So then I have to ask just in case, because I understand it's just a theory, but do you have a theory as to what that benefit was that led to it being reproductively fitness? like to lead to an increase in reproductive fitness for humans I'm, to have that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the most likely explanation is the cooperative abilities that we had let us do something that was more, I'm going to fall back on a non-human primate example, marmosets and tamarins are, have, were the, the realm of, if, if you were going to study paternal care or alloparenting in non-human primates, for much of the history of our discipline, it was in marmosets and tamarins specifically, right? These animals work together. Fathers, mothers, siblings, everybody participates in, in childbearing. And frankly, mom does, I mean, there's some species in which mom basically never interacts with her infants. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but she nurses them and that's pretty much it, right? Dad carries them 90% of the time. He will lose large percentage of his body weight because it's so much work to carry these kids around. But the fitness that these animals have compared to other primates is incredible. Mom can have twins. And she can have, so they're one of the very few uh, groups of species in which that have postpartum estrus, meaning they can actually get pregnant while they are nursing. That's physically impossible in most species. That's, there's obviously huge, huge reproductive benefits to the kinds of cooperative behavior that you see in those systems. And my suspicion is that we something very similar happened in humans. That's what allows us to reproduce so fast, right? So Humans, our interbirth intervals are very, very short compared to something like a chimpanzee or a gorilla. And we think that that is specifically a consequence of our very cooperative child rearing. And I think that all of that is part of the same story is, is you know, my best guess. That's, yeah. I mean, and it does make sense. It, I think it's, as you point out, it's that interesting part of how did it get from that unique familial unit where the paternity does make sense from that fitness to the broader everyone. And I know, you know, my own research, my dissertation work looked at sharing with, you know, others outside group, others and young kids, and they show it. They are, you know, not to the same degree as they get to, there's an age effect as they get older, but it was fascinating to see um, that they did share it. And interestingly, they shared more, with people that were deemed kind of socially more acceptable. So if you present people, strangers, in a way that they sound like they are socially of a higher order, they will share more with them than they would with others. So there's something still in that evolutionary dominance seemingly still going on there with young ones. But um, but the fact that they share with strangers, nonetheless, was... Fast That's and not, still amazing. Yes. Yeah. And not forced. It was their own. It was a cost to them. They had to give up something they had earned to give to someone else in need, which was kind of the interesting part. But anyway, that's, that's not cool. what we're talking about. Um, so the one other thing about this is we're talking about the relationship between mothers and fathers. One of the things that Lee brought up with the adults was that, again, as we talked about briefly earlier, the relationship between mother and father had a effect on the outcomes of the child. The better the relationship, the better the outcomes, which sounds logical, but also doesn't have to when you think about the, the myriad things that go into child outcomes. What about non-human primates? Do we see because they don't have these affinities the way we've just been talking about the, the lead to this? Do we see that a better relationship between female and male has a better effect on the child? Like we go back to these friendships, co-parenting positive affiliations. It sounds like right. they would, that that right. goes on, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 that's a great question and something I desperately wish we had an answer to. So the short answer is we have hints that that might be true. 
Um, so if we if we actually do assume, and we're pretty confident about this, that part of the function of this co-parenting relationship is making sure that that kid is a high quality kid that successfully gets itself through you know, infancy and, and actually survives to be able to reproduce itself. If that co-parenting relationship is critical to making that happen, then yes, obviously the answer to that is yes. One of the things that is very challenging about, um, it's very challenging to measure this kind of thing in non-human primates for obvious reasons. Part of the issue is they have very long lifespans. You have to collect data for a tremendous number of years. You have to collect a very specific kind of data for a large number of animals for a very long time. And it's just a notoriously difficult thing to measure, right? And you know, another fundamental question is what is the outcome we should be looking at? Is it just simply survival? Is that the only thing that matters? Or does it have kind of more subtle effects? Does it affect how likely you are to grow up and become a dominant male gorilla, for example? Does it affect um, how big you are or the age at which you, uh, the age at which you first reproduce, right? Which, you know, we know impacts how many kids you might have over the course of your life. There's all these different pathways through which it is potentially impacting outcomes. We're not quite sure which ones are the right ones to be looking at. Um, there is some there are some interesting hints at this. So I know that there's a nice paper on baboons that shows that uh, kids who have their dad around actually um, hit sexual maturity sooner in baboons than those that don't. And we don't know the mechanism. Um, we you know, there's a lot of pieces of that story that need to be put together, but I think there's definitely hints out there that something similar is going on in other animals. We just don't have the empirical data yet to prove for sure that it's true. So you saying the sexual maturity sooner flagged for me, and I'm forgetting the name of the the early life hypothesis, the early... In humans, uh, right, where early stressors actually lead to advance. So it's not the, the quality is almost in the opposite. The negative yes, leads to early sexual maturation. Yes. Although I think, so I am not, admittedly, I am not as familiar with that literature as some people. So you should take everything I say here with, <laughs> with a grain of salt. There is some evidence. I My understanding is that the evidence for that, it's not a very big effect size, right? They People may be maturing earlier, but in the context of a human lifespan, it's not clear that they're maturing enough earlier that there's actually convincing evidence that that is some sort of adaptive thing, which is the which is the premise of the hypotheses that that centers on. So I don't think we really, I don't think that we really know that. We're, we're making a pretty big conceptual leap there. Okay. Because I was thinking though, it just kind of got me wondering about this idea of, you know, sexual maturity being beneficial in some ways, early sexual maturity, but then potentially not in others, more of a sign of other stuff that, again, leading to the question of how do you study it all? Because depending on what you're looking at, it's like I always look at those looking time paradigms with infants. And sometimes looking long is good. Sometimes looking long is bad. Sometimes looking away. And yes. it's, um, you know, when you look too long, it's new, novel, you're bored. It's not, you know, I'm like, wait, I, I don't understand. How are we? Like, yes. How do we know? 
A hundred percent. And, you know, it's really interesting for me as somebody who has one foot in the human research world and one foot in the non-human primate research world. It's really interesting the dichotomy between these things because these you're exactly right. And when we look at other non-human primates, we we frame it as a good thing that they hit sexual maturity sooner. And then because of all the value judgments that go along with that in humans, when we find it in humans, we say, oh, that's a negative, even though it's the exact same phenomenon, right? And so there's all these kinds of, there. there's all this interesting stuff that gets wrapped up in this that means that we can sometimes end up interpreting the exact same result differently for humans and non-human primates, which is is really interesting and definitely, you know, requires some careful thought. That's, I, I'm glad to hear it's not just me that gets confused by some of those because- nope. <laughs> I've always been one of those like, but didn't you just use that? Okay, fine. I'm just going to back yeah. off because it's not my field. So I'm not going to know. So one of the last things I really wanted to touch on, and do you have the time for I do. when we're here? Okay, good. Yep. Um, is the idea of allocare. We've kind of touched on it, hit on it, babysitting, and I've kind of alluded earlier. Um, and so this brings us back to kind of human behaviors here as we linking with the non-human. But we really, a lot of allocare males seem to get lumped in, even with humans, as being a form of allocare, right? That that is, they are just part and parcel. We have our primary mother and males, other females, other kids, daughter, whatnot, all form the source of allocare. But you looked at this in in humans, in the Cebu population, correct? Yep. And you looked at kind of the allocation of care by others, right? So right, it by was like non-parents. Non-parents versus yep. males. And allocare was, as you put it, complementary to paternal care. It didn't replace it. So from the concept of when we think about paternal care, what implications does that have for how we conceptualize the type of care fathers provide versus just from a allocare of just other care being provided. Yeah. If that makes sense. I hope that's yeah. actually clear. Yeah. No, I, 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 at least I think I understand your question. And if I don't, you know, feel free to clarify. Um, so just as a little bit of additional framing, what we were looking at specifically in that in that paper was something called the facultative father hypothesis. And the idea of this is, as you alluded to, that there should essentially be substitutability between fathers and non-parental caretakers, right? And that fathers should do more when there are not non-parents around to help and they should do less when there are. And there's some you know, there's some reasonable empirical evidence for this in various uh, hunter-gatherer populations. It's really interesting work. But one of the things, you know, that Lee and I talked about when we were originally kind of um, going to write this paper is this is not something that has been tested much at all outside of those very specific socio-ecological contexts. And we were really interested in whether this would hold when you're talking about something like, you know, a large-scale uh, you know, large scale society where obviously there's a lot of differences in, in um, you know, the kinds of parental, the kinds of parental investment that are going on, what parental investment looks like. Um, we were really curious whether this would hold. And we didn't, as you said, we didn't find any evidence of this substitutability thing. Instead, it seemed like if there's more alloparental care going on, meaning care by non-parents, then there's also more paternal care going on that the two are kind of happening in tandem. And frankly, 
I guess I don't find this result all that surprising. I mean, I completely understand conceptually the the idea of the facultative father hypothesis. I think it makes a lot of sense in some socio-ecological contexts, but it's not clear to me that it should necessarily translate to all of them. And when you think about the various things that we do for kids in, you know, we think about parents in Cebu who have to not only feed their kids and bathe them and put them to bed, but they have to take them to daycare and they have to take them to playdates and they have to take them to school and they have to help them with homework. And they have to, you know, there's, there's this huge diversity of things that are going on. And I guess I don't find it all that surprising that there's a lot of people participating in this and that those things might end up being complementary rather than substituting for one another. You know, you don't necessarily expect that uh, you know, your grandma is going to be the one that helps you with your homework. And if she doesn't, then your dad does, right? We don't necessarily expect those things to be, they could be substitutable, but my suspicion is that in the real world, that's often not how it works. Um, and so, yeah, we just, we didn't see that. And, you know, we don't exactly know, is that just a function of the norms in some households are different? Like there's just kind of more of a norm of a lot of hands-on investment. Um, we don't entirely know, but yeah, we didn't see a lot of evidence for that. It made me wonder if some of it is that if you have higher paternal investment, you also probably have a greater relationship with that side of the family. It increases the number of people you have access to in terms of allo care, because, you know, I would just imagine if a dad's not involved um, or another partner's not involved, like whatever the paternal care involves there. Um, the alloparental care, like yep. the allo is not there, then their family might not be as invested either because there's a signal from the primary person there that they shouldn't be invested. There's not a worthwhile investment to be made. Absolutely. And something really, I think, potentially important to note is that in the context of this particular place, while it is certainly not entirely patrilocal, it is more, people there are more likely to be patrilocal, meaning they're living near the father's family, not the mother's family. And so I think, you know, there obviously is a lot of really important care that is specifically being done by the father's family. And one of the things that I wondered about and speculated about is, is it possible that there's just essentially social pressure going on there, right? <laughs> it's your kid, you better help take care of him. And if I'm going to help take care of him, then you need to do it too, right? That, uh, that, that those paternal relatives are just kind of reinforcing one another. And obviously dad is a super important part of that network, right? He's kind of the linchpin of that paternal, that paternal side of the family. And if you're living in this patrilocal society and disproportionately living near his kin, that may be one of the consequences of that. So, that, yeah, it's true. I hadn't thought about the opposite direction, too, is that if, you know, grandma is there taking care, grandma's also overlooking if I'm your mom and I'm telling you to get your butt in there exactly. and do homework with your kid right now because I'm not doing it. That's exactly. Right yes. Now, in terms of it, and you may not have an answer to this and I'm not sure, but when we think about the type of care offered, like you, you did touch on it a little bit, like grandma's not doing homework and, you know, there's stuff going on there. Did you find unique forms of care by fathers that really couldn't be outsourced to others outside of mom? Like, you know what I mean? We're talking about right. outside the parental right. unit there. Was there stuff that was, you know, not just the type of, in, or the quantity of involvement, but the, the type of involvement coming from the paternal side? 
Yes. So that's a really good question. And um, one of the things, so first of all, another, another caveat here is that one of the things that we found is that fathers are super important caregivers in this population. And this was something that we had always kind of known, but hadn't actually explicitly looked at before. And there's no question that, you know, mothers are the biggest, they are the source of the most care, right? Which is entirely unsurprising. But fathers are hands down number two. <laughs> like nobody else is even in the ballpark of number two. Um, and then grandmothers come in third, but frankly, they're sort of a distant third to dads in this particular um, in this particular situation. Um, one of the things that we found, and this will maybe not surprise you, you're I'm sure familiar with this literature. Fathers do a lot of um, oh, what did we call it? I forget exactly what we called it in the paper, but essentially the fun kinds of care, playing with kids, taking them on outings, et cetera, like you, you know, taking them for walks, um, singing and dancing with them, things like that. This is something that we see commonly in a lot of cultures. This is certainly not the first place where that's been found. We also did find a fair amount of, um, of uh, educational tasks. So they were also if I'm remembering correctly, disproportionately likely to be doing things like helping with homework, taking kids to school, stuff like that. Whereas I use the homework example specifically because grandma's almost never helped with homework. <laughs> there, were, there were very, very few examples of that, right? They we were, don't trust grandma anymore. It's all outdated. You can't help it. <laughs> Addition now is very different than it was when you were in school, you know. Um, but yeah, so there we did see, I think it's fair to say that we didn't necessarily see super strong task specialization. And I don't, I don't think that any of the tasks, it's quite clear that none of the tasks that we looked at have to be done by a particular caregiver. But that doesn't change the fact that what you see is that there is some specialization going on. And grandmas are disproportionately likely to be doing some things and dads are disproportionately likely to be doing some other things. And while there is some overlap, um, there's also, you know, there is specialization going on for sure. Are there families there? And I just, I have to ask because I, it, it comes to mind people potentially listening who are single parents. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that what you just said was really helpful in thinking that it wasn't, it didn't have to be specialized, that it may be there, but what we see versus what it has to be are two different things. Very. Yeah. Yes. So were there single headed households there for whatever reason? It could be, you know, in, in, in that sense, sorry, just to, were the families, because as you mentioned, it's a, a what was the word? The patro local, patro local. Yep. Um, society. If it was a single mother, was she still close to the males families and was there involvement there by others to replace any absent father. So in that particular paper, the subset of the population that we were looking at was actually uh, households that all had two parents in them that had both a man and a woman. And to be clear, it was not always biological parents. Um, in some cases, they had stepchildren living with them. They had adopted children living with them. Um, so there was some variety there, but those were all two parent households. Um, we actually, however, have another paper that is uh, just about to be resubmitted, actually, that does include some households where the there were mothers in all of these households, just simply for <laughs> defining the population. Um, but some of them did not have fathers with them. And entirely unsurprisingly, you see a lot more alloparental care in the households that do not have a father there, which is 
absolutely indicative of this, you know, of, of what you just said, right? You need somebody else to step in and to help with that. And there's no reason to believe that those people can't do, those allo parents aren't doing things just as competently as dad would do them, right? Um, another interesting thing we found is that when fathers are unemployed, there's less alloparental care going on. And we think that that is simply because if he's not outside the home working, he's doing more childcare in the house, right? So there were, there were a lot of things about this that made a lot of sense just kind of given the dynamics that you would expect in a species like humans where we're really flexible and everybody can do everything and everybody can kind of step in and make stuff happen where it needs to happen. Which is, is I, I think makes sense, but does it relate when we think about Western cultures and this is kind of getting to the, you know, my kind of the, the closing thought here is we're looking at this research in mountain gorillas. We're looking at the research in baboons. We're looking at the research in the Cebu Philippines, which has a, a unique structure different from what many of us in Western societies experience. What does the research tell us or what are the implications for fathers in different cultural constructs? Like what, what can they take from it? Like we talk about the importance of fathers in this group. They were a very second. I don't know offhand, I don't know the research, but I would feel like we might not see that in all Western cultures as well, that they would be so distant to others, or maybe they would be, there would be a greater distance because we don't all live close to other family. But when I think about alloparental care, I don't think about just family members. I'm thinking of daycare workers and teachers and everyone else that takes part in this group yes. living. And there's a large portion of other people that do a lot. Absolutely. Um, so I don't know. So so I guess so many thoughts, but really, how do you think your research informs for fathers in Western cultures to take it down to the simplest yet probably broadest question I could ask? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think uh, one of the more important important ones, I think, is actually goes back to something that you brought up really early on. You know, you were saying that that um, what we had found about the some of the findings about the gorilla surprise you because it doesn't sort of match the macho image that you have. And I think that's a really important one. I think um, my work, but also really critically, the work that has been done by Lee Gettler and Chris Kuzawa and various people has very clearly demonstrated not only are women adapted for caregiving, right? Men have physiological adaptations for caregiving too. And even in a species like gorillas, which are sort of the ultimate in macho primates, right? They are the largest of the living primates. Um, you know, males are huge. They have all these adaptations for fighting and they're very good at it, very effective. And yet they are remarkably good caregivers who seem to have really, really important effects on kids, I think. And we're just beginning to appreciate what those are and the many, many different pathways by which they are potentially affecting outcomes. You know, I think we, for a long time, had very simplistic notions about what fathering meant. And we kind of treated it, at least in primatology, as like, well, if you're not carrying kids around, you're not doing anything important. Right? You're not doing anything worth looking at. I firmly believe that that is not true. And I think that that is a really important lesson for humans, right? Just because you are not the one actually physically carrying the kid around doesn't mean that you don't have important, you're not making important contributions. And sometimes those contributions can be hard to measure, but they are almost certainly there and they are almost certainly really important. And I think especially from a perspective of, you know, social development and kind of, um, 
you know, the many, many, many different ways in which a, a young human child has to be socialized. I think, you know, men have really have a super important role to play there. And there's tons of different ways that that role can be done. There's no one right way. There are lots of different possibilities and they, you know, they just, they have all kinds of outcomes that we're only beginning to understand. And I think that that's something that's very important for us to all keep in mind. I, I love that because it does feel like going back to the macho thing was one of the things that did strike me when I read that the gorilla work was it so counters the beliefs in our cultures where care is considered weak or feminine or, you know, it's of lesser value to provide nurturant care. And clearly, I mean, I think if I'm remembering correctly from talking with Lee, even that Cebu does have more of that macho kind of attitudes. And yet it's not counter to being a good father. That's not something that seems to be at play. So I don't know why we have it in ours where there seems to be this idea that nurturing is not a good thing, but. I agree with you. Although I also feel like it's changing and it's changing quite quickly. I think if you went back 25 or 30 years ago, even, uh, which frankly is not that long in the, you know, given <laughs> humans have a very slow life history, right? Uh, so that's not that long in, in terms of, of uh, human behavior. I think the attitude was very different and I think it's changing remarkably quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree that it is changing and I think it's good. I just think it's, I always find it fascinating when you hear of these other cultures where it's already changed. It's, it's done. They've got it and we can look at it or we can look at the gorilla who, as you said, like terrifyingly dominant and yet that does not impede their ability to be nurturing and caring for apparently a whole host of littles that will follow them around. So it is. So I had one last question about the gorillas that goes back to Lee's research. Cause yeah. you mentioned, you know, all these physical changes. Do you think their testosterone is lower? That is a great question. We actually are looking at that right now. So uh, I have a postdoc. Uh, his name is, is Nick Grebe. He is going to be looking at exactly this question and we don't know is the short answer. It's going to be super interesting if they do. Because I'm fascinated with the idea that they are also looking after kids that aren't their own. Mm -hmm. So is it, you know, what's happening? And just, I guess the, the mating opportunities would be more prevalent at different times. So that whole rise and fall that Lee's seen in terms of that, that human life history would, how would it play out in this group? That's yeah. And we, the bottom line is we don't know, and you're exactly right that it's not even entirely clear what our predictions should be. Um, you know, it's not clear that we should necessarily predict that we would see exactly the same thing, but that is something that we are very interested in investigating because obviously in humans, you know, those physiological, there are clearly those physiological changes that happen and we don't have any evidence for it yet in species like baboons and gorillas. And I think, frankly, it's going to be really interesting either way because it suggests that you don't need the, you obviously don't need those physiological changes in order to make the behavior happen if we don't find any evidence for those. Um, but yeah, that's a really obvious question that needs answering still. So. Well, I am so glad to hear that you're doing it. So it's wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. And I apologize again for how many of my questions probably came across as ignorant, but I am not well-versed in gorillas. No, please. It is absolutely fascinating to me how you look at these structures. And I love in particular your toe in both the primate world and the human, well, I guess we're, we're primates too, but the non-human primate world 
world and the human primate research, because I do, you know, there's always that question of how does it all relate? How do we get to what we're looking at? And I, I yeah. think it's fascinating. So thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. You are very welcome. This was a lot of fun. Your questions were great. That's it for this week, this series, and this season. I hope you have enjoyed not only today, but all of the episodes you've listened to. Again, I want to thank you all so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the episodes, please feel free to either leave a review or share with friends. I'll be off for the holidays and we'll be starting up again in March of 2022 with new guests and some old guests, but always new research and information that I hope can help you on your parenting journey. Have a wonderful holiday season and we'll be back next year. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.